Once again, to Nightlight. Today on the program, we're talking to George Sosik, who is speaking to us over Skype from Melbourne in Australia. George, thanks for being with us on the show. We have a guest tonight on Nightlight. This is an interview that George and I first planned to record about 18 months ago when George emailed me and asked if he could share the battles and victories that he's experienced over the past 20 years battling with life or death health issues related to kidney failure. Also, his young wife unexpectedly dying, leaving him with five children while at the same time fighting a critical medical condition. It's a wonderful story of battles and victories amidst severe hardships. Anyway, here to share his own story is George. Nice to have you finally on the program, George. Maybe you should start by sharing something about yourself. Okay, sure. Um, well, uh, I was born in uh, Melbourne, Australia, where I am now. That was back in 61. I grew up in the suburbs there. Uh, n- nothing unusual. But I had a very difficult childhood. Um, I have uh, six uh, siblings, uh, seven of us all together, and uh, we're uh, our father was Croatian and uh, mum's Italian. So they emigrated from Europe after World War II and uh, settled uh, here just outside Melbourne. I see. But uh, unfortunately, dad was uh, quite mentally ill and uh, suffering from schizophrenia. And he had a lot of uh, trauma in his life, uh, in his personal family, and as well as having experienced World War II. So he as I said, was mentally ill, and this caused us a lot of uh, trouble and pain uh, in in my family. Look, I won't go into all the details here, but it was a pretty rough upbringing. Right. But thankfully, uh, during my teens, I was witnessed to by my older brother, uh, who had uh, become uh, a Christian. Mm-hmm. So I accepted the Lord into my life, and uh, when I was 19, I... I gave up my job and uh, decided to serve the Lord uh, full-time. Praise the Lord. Uh, That was a real turning point in my life. I had a big change in my life, actually, from growing up in a dysfunctional and unhappy household. uh, I was quite transformed inside. I was previously empty and insecure, devoid of self-confidence, didn't have really any meaning or uh, purpose for my life. But uh, deciding to follow Jesus full-time and uh, going abroad at first to Indonesia and then to Europe and many other countries uh, filled my life full of adventure, inspiration, happiness, purpose, and meaning. And uh, I, I became a new person. Uh-huh. Eventually, I got married to uh, my f- first wife, who you, you know. She's the daughter of Peter Van Gorder oh, right. and Esther, who... Yes. Yes. Who? Uh, that's right. Who I believe you've had on your show. Yes, indeed. Yes, we have. Yes, and I think uh, he joined you in some uh, exciting activities there in Africa. Is that true? Yes, he was with us here in Uganda when I first came, or at least he lived here. We actually did a, a theatre show together, uh, which he wrote. <laughs> that's right. He's a very, very talented man. So uh, <laughs> I was quite blessed to marry their daughter. 
that was in Denmark, actually, mm-hmm. uh, back in '84 uh, when we got married. We served the Lord together there in uh, Denmark. I actually first met her in Indonesia, believe it or not, which was back in '83, I think '82 when we first met. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And her parents uh, were there in Indonesia. She grew up there, actually. And uh, then uh, we we got married in Denmark. We served the Lord there uh, in a mission outpost that was uh, doing outreach to the uh, communist countries. Right. Uh, back in the days of the uh, Russian uh, communists and their satellite countries uh, throughout Eastern Europe. Right. Then we moved to Japan in '86, I think it was. It was about the same time that I moved to Japan. Actually, I met my wife there at about that uh, same time. Yes, that's right. I don't think we ever met there. No, that I remember. No, unfortunately, I was usually in the Osaka area, actually, and you were up uh, more in the Tokyo area, I think. Right um, in the Chiba Prefecture. Yes, and uh, well, look, you know, with over the many years of uh, missionary work, I've been doing. A lot of uh, different things, uh, personal witnessing, Bible studies, mm-hmm. tract uh, distribution, music. Uh, as a matter of fact, I used to promote your radio show, Music with Meaning, back in Indonesia. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> I actually helped uh, book it on many, many, many radio stations all over the eastern part of the country. Oh, God bless And uh, helped organize uh, many, many members' meetings in cities all over the eastern part of the country. Those were very exciting times. That was a great show too. I've uh, taught school as a school teacher in elementary and junior highs for uh, mission schools for many years. I was uh, in Japan involved in regular feeding of the homeless uh, ministry for oh, probably 20 years. Gosh. Helped organize many charity concerts because I play music and I have a lot of musician friends. Uh, we did charity concerts for underprivileged children, orphans children of single mothers, senior citizens, homeless people, Bible studies, about everything you could possibly do to serve the Lord. I think I've done it. Absolutely. You've done pretty much everything that a missionary possibly could do. That's wonderful. It's, it's, look, it's been uh, uh, nearly 40 years since I began to serve the Lord, and it's been a great life. Yes, absolutely. And George, for us who've served the Lord for most of our lives, we can look back and tell young people and others who are deciding whether or not to give their lives to the Lord that there's nothing more rewarding or fruitful or meaningful or exciting that you could possibly do with your life than to serve Jesus 100% in whatever capacity he calls you to. Yeah, and well, you know, you, you get a great uh, personal reward, obviously. Uh, you, you gain satisfaction. Um, you know, you're using your life for something very worthwhile. And uh, it benefits others because you're witnessing to them and leading them to the Lord and uh, enriching their life as well, hopefully giving them eternal life if they choose to accept that. And uh, also in the many volunteer projects that I've been involved with, um, it's a great contribution to the community as well. Right, absolutely. And that's a blessing to be a part of that. Hmm. Shining bright in the dark night, you're listening to Nightlight. So for many years, George, you were an extremely active and fruitful missionary, sailing very happily along. When did the dark clouds begin to gather and things start to go wrong? When did it all start? Well, it was about 1998. And uh, my wife and I, uh, we were in Osaka. Uh And we had been there already for uh, more than 10 years. Uh, We had... uh, 
uh, five children uh, at the time who were between the ages of two and 13. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had about a, a small group, about six or seven um, uh, children of missionaries living with us in our home as a sort of a youth group. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were very happy. Life was great. As a couple, we were very compatible. We got along really well. Uh, we were very uh, close. We had a love, very loving relationship. The, the, our kids were doing well. Uh, the young people we had in our home were very loving, uh, very uh, beautiful group of kids who we loved very much and they loved us. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was I? I was about 36. Seven years old at the time, I think. Okay. But suddenly, uh, I started to lose energy, and as uh, some health problems developed, uh, I'd get headache, very severe headaches. Uh, I totally lost energy. I used to be very athletic. Uh, I played sports for uh, many years uh, uh, as a teenager, and I was still playing sports uh, throughout my young adult life. But uh, for some reason, uh, I suddenly lost all my energy. I couldn't climb a set of stairs. Gosh. without huffing and puffing at the end and that was very unlike me right and uh i became very lethargic and also um the veins in my eyes popped gosh they oh. kind of went gray i couldn't see out of one eye and uh the other eye i i could barely see gosh and so i went to see a an eye doctor uh, who was actually a a, a, a student of mine she said, well, you're, you're, the veins in your eyes have popped. Maybe you know, it could be something to do with your uh, high blood pressure. I see. So I went to see uh, another uh, doctor who was a friend of mine, uh, like a general practitioner, and uh, he took my blood pressure. It was 240 on 180. For anyone who has a, any kind of medical knowledge ought to know, that is severely high. He looked at me and he was so shocked. He said, your blood pressure is higher than someone who's sprinting. Gosh. And you're just sitting there. You need to go. Yeah, it, it, it was deathly serious. So you, you can have a stroke. Anyway, he ordered me to go home and uh, take a blood pressure reducing uh, medicine and uh, suggested I have my kidneys test because he also took my... Um, uh, blood and uh, uh, a urine sample, and that showed uh, kidney dysfunction. So, uh, to make a long story short, uh, I was experienced with what they call end-stage uh, chronic kidney disease, and uh, within a year of that, uh, my kidneys totally failed, and that was 1999 in January. Now, when your kidneys fail, you can't; it, your life can't be sustained. You know, it's a vital organ in your body. Uh, actually, the, the function of the kidneys is that they uh, perform a cleansing right. function in your body. They uh, cleanse your body of the toxins that build up. Um, and a lot of people don't know this, and I didn't know this before I had kidney failure, really. Uh, but uh, when you eat, you're consuming nutrients, minerals and vitamins and all that, and that's good. You need that to, to, to live off. But what happens is that uh, your kidneys, what they do is they um, remove the excess of those from your body. Oh, I didn't know that. Because those, a lot of those uh, nutrients in excess are harmful for you. As, as one, one example is uh, potassium, for instance. You get potassium in fruits and vegetables and many other foods. You need potassium. 
But too much potassium in the body will actually kill you. You'll have a heart attack. Gosh. That's what, so um, without your kidney operating properly within your body, uh, you'll have too much potassium and you'll die. So people for thousands of years who experienced kidney failure, they, they died. Right. That was it. But uh, about 50 or 60 years ago, a means of keeping patients with kidney failure alive was developed. That's called dialysis. And uh, basically what that does is uh, you're hooked up to a, a filtering machine. It's called a dialysis machine. And so you go to a clinic and uh, they hook you up to this machine. The way they hook you up is they have these quite uh, rather thick needles. Two are required. One goes into an artery and the other one goes into a vein. Uh, your blood, uh, a little bit at a time, not all at once, uh, your blood is pumped out slowly through one of those needles and out through the tubes going through this machine that has a filter. Gosh. And then it's once the blood passes through the filter and the toxins are removed, the blood is filtered back into your body uh, via the vein. So there's this circulatory motion of the uh, blood through this filter. And that what that does is it removes the toxins that has built up in your body since the last time you did dialysis. Right. At which uh, most, patient, most patients, we do it three times a week for four hours at a time. Gosh. And so what that machine is, it acts as a replacement for a, a normal kidney. That's what I did starting uh, 1999. Uh, I had to go to a nearby clinic to our home in Osaka in Japan and have my blood filtered of those toxins uh, for four hours at a time. Gosh, like 12 hours a week. This uh, dialysis treatment is like a stopgap replacement for a natural kidney. And it's a tough life. You're not, uh, you know, it's not like you have your blood filtered and you, you, you know, like you, you crawl into the clinic, you're so tired and you have your blood filtered and you sprint out. Right. Uh, it's, it's not like that at all. I'm sure. Dialysis patients are usually very tired. We have many problems. We're kind of like 50% of a normal person or less. It, it would take me a long time to get into the whole thing, but it's a, t it's a tough life. I can tell you that. I can imagine. Yeah. Most of us don't work where we just don't have the, the physical capacity for that. You lack concentration. You, you're always thirsty because, uh, believe it or not, we uh, another thing that happens when you're when you have uh, uh, kidney failure is that you you lose the ability to urinate. Really? Because what happens is you 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 when you drink, uh, eventually the uh, uh, fluids that your body doesn't need pass through the kidneys. Right and go out through your urinary system. Right. But when you have kidney failure, your kidneys no longer have the um, ability to pass that water out. So so people may wonder, well, what, what do kidney failure patients do, you know, to uh, handle that when you can't go pee anymore? I was wondering that. Well, you don't drink pretty much uh, anymore. Not much anyway. See, now, the dialysis has the capacity to... Remove some of the uh, fluid from your blood. Uh -huh. There's water in your blood. The dialysis filter actually can remove some water from your blood, but not a lot. So we are quite limited into how much we can drink. Most dialysis patients can only drink about uh, two small glasses of any kind of liquid per day. Gosh. So that would be equate to about 400 milliliters 
of liquid. If you drink too much, then the filter has to take all that out of your body. And that's, uh, without going all, into all the medical details, it becomes hard on your heart. And uh, if you do that consistently on a long-term basis, you can have a heart attack. I'm a th one thirsty guy, I can tell you. I can only drink about two glasses uh, per day. Gosh. And that, of course, means I can't uh, consume anything else that turns to liquid at room temperature. So that means ice cream or uh, fruits or um, uh, foods with a lot of liquids or anything. So I have, I'm quite limited to eating uh, dry, drier type foods and uh, uh, drinking very little water. And also we're limited in the our intake of certain minerals and uh, other uh, nutrients like potassium, um, calcium, phosphates, things like that. So we we have quite a lot of dietary restrictions that we have to put up as well. So I can't eat the foods that I want to eat, nor the quantities or anything like that. It's a tough life, Simon, I'm telling you. <laughs> Gosh, man, it sounds really miserable, especially not being able to quench your thirst ever and living in a hot country like Australia. I, mean, I don't think I could take it. Did you never feel just like giving up and going on to heaven? Look, I have no problem going to heaven. Uh, that would be more fun. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're guaranteed a new body there, right? So all our worries are over. But you have to have a reason to be here on this earth. Right. Uh, even if you're not a Christian, uh, you know, like us, um, everybody has to have a reason. Uh, and, of course, uh, as a Christian serving the Lord, uh, my primary reason is to do whatever God's will for my life is. And that has been to, to, to be a missionary and to ins in, to preach the gospel by every means uh, that I possibly can and to serve the communities that I live in uh, by any means that I can. And, of course, I've got my family. I have uh, uh, six children now, and uh, they're very important to me. Mm -hmm. of many friends there's a lot to live for it's an exciting life <laughs> right look um i often say to people who who i speak to and you know they they say to me what you basically what you've said that gee it sounds like a tough life and all of that uh i don't think i could bear it and all of those kind of things and i say well look um is the glass half full or is it half empty Mm -hmm. You know, if you're thirsty, like I am, I'm, I'm thirsty every day, all day, I'm telling you. If I can only drink half a glass of water, to me, that's a thrill. So rather than looking at what I can't drink, I look at what I can drink. And that's the way I look at my life. Dialysis keeps me alive. And I can still enjoy so many things in life that are very beautiful and very exciting and life is not actually a chore and uh, a bore for me. Uh, I'm, I have a great life, although I have some physical um, limitations and problems that are pretty bad. I, 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 I can agree with that, but still, it's okay. I have no problem. But that's not all. If anyone listening might right now at, to this point might think that uh, I've been on dialysis since 1999. That actually what is not so. Um, what happened was... Uh, some amazing things happened actually in between. One was that uh, in 2001, I was able to have a kidney transplant. For your listeners who are not familiar with that, what that means is that you you can get a kidney from another person. Right. Uh, most people are born with two kidneys. Uh, there's the occasional person born with one, but the, the vast majority are born with two. And actually, you only need one. Really? Even if you're only born with one, that will uh, 
that will handle the complete uh, necessary kidney function for, for uh, your body. Some people even lose a kidney in, a, in an accident or a sports injury or whatever, and what happens is the other kidney, the remaining kidney, takes over the 100% function need required for a person to live. So what happened was I was, as I said, doing dialysis in Japan. Uh, it was very rough. One thing uh, about dialysis, it keeps you alive, but it doesn't keep you alive forever. You have a lot of associated problems with dialysis. It's not a replacement for a kidney, no. Uh, it's an artificial stopgap measure to keep you going. When a person has kidney failure and starts dialysis, from that point on, generally uh, in most, uh, I think the average around the world is that uh, that person's life expectancy is half of a normal person. I see. For instance, I start, if you start dialysis at 40 years old and the average person lives till 80, you could probably expect to live maybe another 15 or 20 years at the most. Because your body just breaks down in the end. Now, I started at 37 and I had five young children uh, and a wife and they were very, very worried for me. It, it was a highly emotional and very difficult time. Right. I had many problems. One time, uh, my potassium level sh suddenly shot through the roof. Uh, I almost passed away. I was uh, carried off to the hospital, suddenly barely made it. Uh, there were other serious problems I had. So it was pretty rough. Uh, thankfully... One of my sisters, uh, Teresa, she flew from Australia to Japan to come and visit me while I was in hospital, and uh, she offered me a kidney. Wow. God bless her. Yes. Uh, and I had barely seen her for 15 years, uh, but yet uh, she had enough love. She's an amazing uh, woman. Uh, she, she came to visit me in the hospital. She sat by my bedside, and she... Uh, very humbly and quietly offered me a kidney. Now, at first, uh, I refused because I was quite concerned uh, for her. She has a, you know, a husband and four beautiful children, and uh, I, you know, requires a, a quite a, a significant operation. Of course. And I was quite concerned about how that would impact her and her family. But to make a long story short, uh, uh, we ended up having the operation. But in order to do so, I had to move to Australia from Japan. We thought that would be the best way to do it. And that meant necessitating me going down there with my wife and uh, five children. At the time, I was working uh, as a, a Christian wedding celebrant, doing uh, about oh, 20 or 30 weddings, uh, wedding ceremonies a month and getting quite a good uh, uh, salary for that. Uh -huh. uh, through reasons I can't explain here, suddenly I lost that job. Mm -hmm. So right at the time that my uh, sister uh, offered the kidney, I lost my job uh, and I was on dialysis. Gosh. I earlier said that you, a lot of people don't work on dialysis uh, and that's because most of them are over 50. Most dialysis patients actually over 60. But I was young enough and still had an, a, enough energy to do part-time work, which was working uh, just on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, but it paid very well. But uh, to make a long story short, the Lord... That was the beginning of what I would say has been the last uh, nearly 20 years of a series of amazing miracles that have kept me going through very severe, tough times. Mm -hmm. What happened was uh, all our friends rallied around us, and within two months, they raised uh, about 40,000 US dollars, I think, wow. on our behalf. It was unbelievable. People we didn't even know. <laughs> were sending money into a bank account for us, uh, a group of people that I had been uh, uh, 
working with uh, on a project to feed the homeless. They got together. They raised thousands of dollars by picking up uh, discarded uh, drink cans from the parks for one cent per can. And they raised, uh, you know, uh, what was it? Ten thousand dollars. Gosh, I, I can't remember. It's a, it's lot, a lot of, of money. cans. We got uh, something like uh, two hundred and two dollars from somebody. And if you know the Japanese, they they only deal in round numbers. They wouldn't send you two hundred and two dollars. <laughs> right, know? right. Uh, I didn't know who it was, and then I got an email because you know their name appeared in the bank account. You know, my wife and I didn't know who these people were, but um, a few days later, I got an email from these people, and and they said uh, something like this: uh, "We are so and so and so and so, young married couple with two kids. We heard about you from uh, the kindergarten where your wife was um, teaching part time. They asked us to." donate to get you to Australia to have your transplant. And uh, this $200, uh, four months ago, we decided uh, as a young family, they had two small, very small kindergarten age children, uh, we decided to set aside $50 a month so that in five years we could go to Hawaii for a family vacation. This is the first four months of our Hawaii oh, fund wow. for you. Beautiful. And the $2 is the... Uh, accumulated savings of our two young children who recently started doing household chores for a few cents per chore. They want to give it all to you. Things like that happened. Uh, it, it was amazing. I'll, I'll tell you something, Simon, and here's something uh, I hope you'll, will encourage your listeners who, are, who may be going through tough times. Yes. We went through a really rough time, but God was in control of the whole situation, and he... He let, let me drop onto a very tough rock, but he, he gave me a soft landing. The way people rallied around us touched us so deeply. We, we were in tears. It was amazing uh, what, uh, how much love we received from all kinds of people. We were able to make the trip down to uh, Melbourne, Australia, where I am actually now. Six months later, I had a kidney from my wonderful sister. That meant I could get off dialysis. I had a functioning kidney that functioned at almost as good as any normal person's kidney function would be. Praise the Lord. And it was a great victory yes, for our family. Yes. I didn't have to be on that machine anymore to survive. I had a, I had a surge of clean blood going through my body. I, I, I uh, had forgotten what it was like. I suddenly got my energy back. I could drink and eat anything again. It was a magnificent life change and a huge victory for us, a great relief for my wife who was very, very worried about me. They were concerned that I might pass away at any time. It was a huge relief. Wow, what a miracle. What a story. But uh, that wasn't the end of the story, I, Simon, uh, of the journey. Yes, I know. And there's a part two and also a part three of this story. And before you take us on to the next part of your journey, let's take a break for a song. How about this one from Mick Fridley? I remember days when we would laugh and we would play. We would cast away our worries with every passing day. We were reaching for the stars Wanting to go so far To the little ones who needed 
And that's why I want to plead again Don't give up hope, my friend Never say no, no, don't you give in Don't you know You've got the key to the door Your faith means more to me Now those days have passed And those mountains we have climbed Yes, you're right, it seems so fast But we've left them all behind But we've got to move along Though we can't give up our song now Cause it's written in the wind That we'll have to sing again Yes, it's worth the pain and tears To see the fruit of yesterday That in spite of all our fears We came this far Yes, it's worth the pain and tears to see the fruit we have today. But our dreams should still be reaching for the stars. Don't give up hope, my friend. Never say no, no, don't you give in, don't you know? You've got the key to the door Your faith means more to me Don't give up hope, my friend Never give up, no, don't you give in Don't you know You've got the key to the And that was Mick Fridley from an album called Friends Forever, which he made with Sam Halbert and Ruth Gordon. That track was called Don't Give Up Hope. And our guest on the show today, George Sosick, God bless him, has not given up hope or faith in spite of having a kidney failure and dialysis treatment and eventually, praise God, a successful kidney transplant. But I gather that after making it back to full health, there was another severe test of your faith in store with your wife suddenly going to be with the Lord. Yes, um, I guess you could call that uh, chapter two of the story. Um, just when I had the transplant uh, and I, I recovered from the operation and my sister thankfully recovered very well and life seemed to be on the right track again. We... Uh, planned to go back to Japan where we uh, had uh, enjoyed living for, for quite a few years and we wanted to resume uh, missionary work there. So I went uh, to Japan for a couple of months with uh, our oldest son. I scouted out uh, the possibilities for us to return there. I found a home for us to rent uh, that we could live in and uh, set up the situation so we could return. After that, I went back down to Melbourne to be with my wife, and our plan was to pack everything up, buy our tickets, and go back to uh, Osaka in Japan. And 
five days after I arrived back in Australia, she suddenly passed away in the night. Gosh. You mean there was no warning? She wasn't sick or anything? No. She was uh, only 34 years old. Uh, she was completely healthy. There were no warning signals whatsoever. So what was the cause of death? A brain hemorrhage. It was about uh, 1 o'clock in the morning. We had just spent some time together. We were telling each other how much we loved each other. Those were the last things we said. Then she said she had a headache. And uh, she wanted to get up from the bed to go to the bathroom. But uh, she collapsed. Gosh. And that was it. She never spoke again. Gosh. It was a massive shock for me. It was a devastation. And for the children. And for the, and for the children, yeah, it was really hard. And for all our uh, family and friends, it was a huge shock. Uh, sorry, I get a bit emotional uh, talking about it, but... Bringing you peace in the midst of the storm. You're listening to Nightlight. George, what did the Lord show you as the reason for your wife's sudden passing? While we don't see things clearly while these things are happening at the time, usually when we look back after a number of years, we can see the Lord's loving plan. So where was the victory? Of course, it was a victory for your wife in that she went to be with Jesus and to heaven, but extremely tough for you and your children and her family and loved ones who were left behind. How did you make it through this time? How did the Lord encourage you? Yeah, uh, well, uh, these are pretty deep uh, things uh, for anyone who's ever gone through such uh, despair and heartbreak to lose the one that you love more than anyone in this world. Uh, that's hard to answer. Uh, you know, I can say heartbreak is good for us, Simon. It's not, it, you know, you don't want that to happen to you, but... Uh, and, and I wouldn't wish, wish it on anybody, but heartbreak purifies you. It, um, it makes you uh, appreciate life. It makes you appreciate your loved ones. Mm -hmm. It makes you appreciate uh, everything you have. Uh, it makes you more sympathetic to people. Mm -hmm. I, I think I was a little bit proud before that. You know, before that whole kidney failure thing, it wasn't just my wife passing away. The whole thing, all these things I've been through, I was, I was used to be very athletic. I, you know, I could do whatever I wanted to do. Uh, life had gone well for me in my adult life, you know, since I started serving the Lord. And uh, maybe I had some pride in me. Uh, some people around me told me that, you know, I could act like a bit of a know-it-all sometimes. But I think... Through that, I, I kind of got smashed up mm -hmm. and broken down a lot. It wasn't fun, but I can say it was good for me. Rubs off the rough edges, you know. Uh -huh. uh, the thing is, uh, I've heard it said, uh, and I've read it many times, that God only uses broken people. Yes. Why is that? Well, from bitter experience, uh, I think uh, now I, I feel that I'm a lot more loving towards people. I'm a lot more understanding than I used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, when I hear of or see or encounter people who have, are going through tough times, I'm a, a lot more sympathetic to them. And as a witness 
for Jesus when you're trying to get across, you know, the message of his love and how much God wants to save people and all that, uh, if, it, if it's coming just out of your head, it's not that effective. But if it's coming from a real broken heart, then, you know, people um, are more prone to respect what you're saying. Yes. A lot of people know my story, uh, you know, people who I interact with on a daily basis, uh, who I work with, whatever, uh, or used to work with. Uh, they all know my story. And uh, a lot of people have actually become Christians uh, and accepted Jesus into the life their lives because of uh, my testimony. Wow. Uh, because they know I've had to really rely on him to get through these devastations, right? Wow, that's beautiful. Praise the Lord. Those are some things uh, that I've learned uh, from it or that the good is that have come out of it. Um, but, it, it, look, it wasn't easy, yeah. But then after a while, the Lord gave you a new wife, I hear. Uh, yes, uh, but b before I go on to that, I'd like to uh, touch on one, one aspect of this is that sure. you know, a lot of people might look at some of the things that have happened to me and say, wow, I can never go through that. But I will say this, there is a scripture that tells us that God never gives us anything uh, more than we are able to bear. That's right. But will with that trial give us the strength to endure it, mm -hmm. right? Right. And that is absolutely true. Uh, and, and, and not only that, when you're in the middle of these uh, rough times, yes. and I felt it very clearly, sometimes I, I was so devastated by what was happening to me, uh, I could barely speak. Uh, some people tried to comfort me when my wife uh, passed away, and I would just break down and cry for hours. I was so so deeply devastated i couldn't even speak uh about it um and i would just have to go and l lay down and just cry it out and then sometimes i'd be there for two or three hours or more until I, I i was emotionally stabilized but when i was in my deepest despair i often had this uh very profound sense that i was surrounded by these, how do you say, like angelic helpers. Wow. I would have this vision that I was like a severely wounded patient on a hospital bed. Like I could see this vision like I was in a hospital room watching myself on a bed. And surrounding the bed would be some medical staff, doctors, nurses, and specialists, and so on. And they were watching me. And, that, and their assessment of me was that this man is severely wounded, but he's going to survive. Wow. But it's going to take him a long time to get over his wounds, and we're going to have to nurse him through it. And that vision to me was that meant that God and these angelic and spiritual helpers were, going, were surrounding me in my despair, and it was going to take a long time for me to get over it, but that I would get through it somehow. Wow. Praise the Lord. And, and that really sustained me. Uh-huh. It really did. Also, I had magnificent help from my friends, my relatives, uh, everybody. They were just wonderful to me and my kids. They helped out. Uh, they came to the rescue to help me raise the kids. Um, also, uh, there were many spiritual experiences besides that. There was another one, uh, actually, when my first wife, when she passed away, I, I told you that the last words we said to each other were, that we loved each other. Right. But that wasn't the large word she spoke, actually, because when she was collapsing, 
just before she collapsed, it was dark, it was 1 a.m. in the morning, she said to me, who's that woman over there? Tell her to go away. Gosh. Now, I can tell you, Simon, there was not another woman in the room. Someone had come to get her, I believe, and she didn't want to go. But it was God's timing that she went. So, you know, it it was a devastation, but uh, I could tell God was still there. Yes. Things were happening that showed that he had his hand in this whole thing. Yes. And he was allowing it, but at the same time, he was making it easy for me too by giving these, uh, you know, spiritual occurrences and uh, visions and things like that that let me know that uh, he was firmly in control. So, uh, you know, I survived it. Then uh, after she passed away, uh, her parents came came here and uh, her, her brother and sister came here to help me out. I got a lot of help from people. In the end, things settled down and I went back to Japan with my kidney, working well, and uh, my children. And we resettled in Japan because I felt I needed to go back to mission work. And also I had uh, uh, wedding celebrant work there that I could do to support us. And that leads me back to your last question. Uh, you said uh, that I'd met somebody else. Yes. Which I did. And that was in uh, Fukuoka City in Japan. I met my present wife. And uh, we got married in 2008. Praise the Lord. Now, uh, before I met her, there was uh, about two years of struggling. I had my new kidney. Yes. But that had a few problems here and there before it really, my body really accepted it fully. Uh, so I was in and out of hospital still sometimes and... Uh, I uh, had food poisoning a few times because uh, actually when you get a transplanted kidney, it's not like putting a new battery or a new part in a car. Right. You know, if a part breaks down in your car, you just take the old one out and you put a new one in, right, and then you're off. But with a, a new kidney, that kidney is not your organ. It's a foreign enemy, actually. It's considered a foreign enemy by your immune system. So what you've got to do is you've got to take these uh, immunosuppressive drugs twice a day, 12 hours apart, in order to suppress your immune system so that your immune system doesn't attack the kidney and destroy it. And so I was taking these uh, immunosuppressing drugs, but when you take those immunosuppressive drugs, while they keep that kidney functioning in your body and that keeps you alive and healthy, also makes you very susceptible to getting diseases. Right. So you've got to avoid things like the flu and uh, measles and you know, all those kind of uh, communicable diseases that you can get. So I got a few of those things. Uh, uh, so I struggled still, and I struggled emotionally as well uh, with my wife having passed away. But then again, uh, Simon, uh, God was completely in control. And uh, in the, even though I thought that at uh, 42 years old, with five children and still struggling with a major health issue, no woman would want to be with me. And I had no money also. <laughs> but uh, I did uh, come across uh, my present wife, River. Uh, she's Japanese. And uh, we, we met there uh, doing mission work. And for some reason, I know not what, she liked me. 
<laughs> and more importantly, she loved the kids. Praise the Lord. And we all got along well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got together and suddenly the sunshine came out in my life. Yes. It was a beautiful, uh, a beautiful change for me. Uh, after I think it was about six or seven years of really struggling. God bless you. We had a child, and she's uh, her name is Karen. She's seven years old, and she's a beautiful little girl. There's another scripture that says, all things work together for good that, to them that love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8, 28. But that wasn't the end of the, the hardship, Simon. Gosh, well, whatever happened next must have happened after the last time we talked. See, actually, the last time we talked was uh, a little about a year and a half ago. That's true. Uh, but uh, right after we talked, the kidney that I had began to fail. Now, I had it for 16 years. Yes. It uh, suffered uh, what they call chronic rejection. When you get a, a, an organ transplant, those organs, uh, like I said, they're not like changing apart in the car. They're subject to your body your, your immune system attacking them. The immunosuppressive drugs keep them from getting attacked, but eventually the body usually overcomes the immunosuppressive drugs and attacks the kidney or whatever the transplant organ is. And uh, so mine failed, and uh, I experienced a couple of months of pretty severely bad health. I was in hospital for a month. I had uh, a very unique form of pneumonia called pneumocystis pneumonia. About uh, one-third of patients who get that type of pneumonia die from it. Gosh. Thankfully, I survived, uh, but the kidney failed, and uh, since that time, I've been back on dialysis, Simon. Oh, I'm so sorry. So three times a week, going to a local clinic and uh, having my blood cleaned. So uh, that was in uh, Osaka in Japan. So my wife and I decided to again come to Australia in order to have another kidney transplant. So <laughs> going back uh, to the same situation as I was back in uh, the year 2000, when we, uh, 2001, when I had my first one. We came here this time with my second wife. And again, uh, all our friends uh, in Japan rallied around us. And uh, many thousands of dollars were raised so that uh, we could make the trip and pack everything up and uh, have money for our landing here. They were unbelievable. Again, uh, Simon in Japan, uh, some of our friends even uh, switched the our yearly charity concert, which usually benefited the homeless or uh, orphan children or underprivileged children or other needy people. Uh, they switched it to benefiting us this year and... Uh, Many thousands of dollars were raised, uh, and we got a lot of support there. And so we've been here since last uh, December, Mm -hmm. and uh, I've been doing dialysis. And uh, what I've done this time is uh, registered on the kidney transplant waiting list. So uh, I was accepted on the list a couple of weeks ago, and I'm waiting to get a phone call when a kidney becomes available. And then I'll have to rush to the hospital and uh, have that kidney surgically inserted into my body within 24 hours. So we're praying for the Lord to uh, supply that kidney in his good time. I see you searching to find relief in a sea of pain. 
Richard Hansen with what I suspect is a Michael Dooley composition and production when the healer comes. Nightlight's interview of the week. And our interview this week has been with George Sosick, who's now awaiting his second kidney transplant as he speaks to us from his home in Melbourne, Australia. And I'm happy, George, and very sure also that hearing your testimony on this program at the very least will generate a lot of prayer power for your ongoing fight of faith. In the short time we have left, maybe you could wrap up with anything else you'd like to share or anything else that our listeners could take from listening 
to your story. Well, one more thing I'd like to ask you is, and of course, any of us can go to be with the Lord any day. None of us have a guarantee of a long life, but you've had to continually face the very real possibility that you could very soon pass from this life to the next. Have you had a peace about that? Oh, absolutely. I've, uh, you know, as the Apostle Paul said, it's preferable, really. <laughs> uh, he said that would be a gain for him, right? But um, so, you know, you know, we know what awaits us there, right? That's no problem for me personally. But uh, I have a wonderful wife. She has been amazing to me. She's uh, accepted the children from my first wife completely. They love her to bits as well. She takes such great care of me. We have a beautiful daughter. And River, my wife, is pregnant oh. four months now. So Congratulations. Uh, we're going to have another child in December. Wow. I have a lot to live for. And, and look, there are so many people I witness to as well. There are people who don't know Jesus yet. I've got a job to do, Simon. Right. And I'm not done yet. Uh, well, like I said, I'm not uh, uh, at all uh, afraid to you know, pass on to the next life. Um, it's all good. But th- there's just too much to live for now. And this actually leads me to uh, how I'm going to – I'd like to wrap this up, actually. Um, uh, throughout this uh, 20 – nearly 20 years of battling kidney failure and my first wife passing away and all the, you know, things that I've been through, uh, I often uh, have come to mind this amazing passage in the book of Psalms. Uh, it's in uh, Psalm 139. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to read it here, if that's okay with you. Sure. Uh, the writer is uh, pondering how deeply God thinks about him, the writer, how, how, how deeply God is concerned about him and how deeply God knows him. And he shares these words in the spirit of uh, amazement at, at uh, these thoughts about God. And this is what he says. For you, that's God, he's talking to God here, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderfully are your works. And that my soul knows very well. My frame, or my body, was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. So he's talking about when he was being made in his mother's womb, when he was being formed as a fetus. When I was intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. Wow. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than sand. Basically what he's saying is reflecting on the fact that when he was formed in his mother's womb, God formed him so intricately, so delicately. He designed him down to the most finest detail with a very special and profound plan for his life. And to him, that was amazing. And uh, this often came to me when uh, I was battling through some of the worst uh, of my trials, that my life is precious to God. He He's ordained every step of my life, uh, my characteristics, my personality, uh, even my body, 
my body parts. He, he knew that my kidney would fail. He knew all these things would happen. But this is all part of his plan for me. Yes. And as uh, we read here in this particular passage, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. They're, they're more than the sand. God is, he knows it all. It's all in his, his uh, control. And these things happen for a good reason. Yes. You know, a lot of people, Simon, they, they don't know what the answer is to why evil occurs. But if you know the Lord, and if you know God's word, you know that there's a good reason. Out of evil comes good, right? Absolutely. Uh, whereas if you don't have faith, if you only think that there's this life, for instance, you don't believe in the afterlife and you don't believe in God. And if a person experienced what I have experienced with that mindset, you would be devastated. You would think, it's so unfair. How come the other guy's doing fine? And look at me. I got, I got the, the, the raw end of the deal. It's just not fair. How come I'm going to live a, probably a shorter life than most people and it's going to be full of troubles and trials and everyone else is doing so well? I would definitely have thought that way. It would have been too much for me. But this passage and so many other uh, of God's promises have really given me the strength to handle these uh, trials. And so I'd like to leave that thought with your listeners. If your listeners are going through anything that's just too much to bear, let God take control of your life. Trust him and he'll pull you through. George, thanks so much for everything that you've shared with us on Nightlight. God bless you. Thank you, Simon. And if you were blessed by George's testimony, please do share it with as many as you can by passing on the link through your social media or whatever way you can. That's all for now, and I'll see you again next time for another edition of Nightlight. Bye-bye. 